Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Bright Not Broken radio show on the Coffee Clatch. I am your host, Diane Kennedy, along with my co-host, Rebecca Banks. Are you there tonight, Becky? I am, Diane. Thank you. Wonderful. I know you've been feeling a little under the weather, but we are so um, thrilled to have you on this conversation tonight uh, with our guest. We are talking tonight about Twice Exceptional, who they are, Asperger, ADHD, and Gifted. And as you all know, um, if you've been following us here on Bright Not Broken, who they are is a very important topic, and we've got some exciting information for you tonight. We're going to dig really deep into exactly what that means. Um, it's a relatively new term, twice exceptional, and we knew that when we uh, began our journey, but sorting through the confusing mix of strengths and challenges that these children possess is nothing new, especially for the parents and care providers who struggle to help them. Our guest, Dr. Lane Cobflesh, is a neuroscientist who's dedicated to identifying and understanding this unique 2E population. Through her multiple research efforts and distinguished work as a principal investigator at Kids, Lab, which is Kresnow Investigations of Developmental Learning and Behavior at George Mason University. She's breaking new ground in the awareness and identification of this important group of individuals who often fall through the cracks of our educational and mental health systems. Join us tonight as we discuss some of her recent work, including the importance of updated 2E population data, Asperger's Executive Function, and Intelligence. And one more thing before I turn you over to this lane. So glad to have you tonight. Um, Dr. Cabflesh is a seasoned expert and researcher in educational psychology, neuroscience, and gifted education. She has an extensive background and has published in related journals, books, and articles, along with uh, she also has practical experience in the classroom, and she's hosted and presented at numerous lectures internationally. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you very much. It's great to be here tonight. We are really excited to have you, and uh, we recently were both presenters at the NAGC conference. It's where we met and learned about um, your wonderful presentations and your wonderful work. So before we really get into the meat of that tonight, will you give us just a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Twice Exceptional Children? Sure. Um I kind of bumped into twice exceptionality as a graduate student. Um, a very good friend, colleague, and mentor 
suggested that I spend some time in the Learning Needs and Evaluation Center at the University of Virginia, and I quickly found myself kind of helping about 15 to 20 folks at the university level with obviously very high intelligence, um, very smart people, but had Asperger's, attention deficit, clinical depression, um, you know, just different hosts of disorders. And at this point, you know, in my early 20s with a, a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature and, and a background in music and voice, I didn't know a lot about this population and their needs. So I kept asking doctors and psychologists and educators, and everybody's answer was the same. You know, we don't really know too much about people like this, and there are plenty of interesting stories. Um, you know, historically, you know, Einstein and Nikola Tesla and Winston Churchill and um, people that, that had some of these qualities, but no empirical evidence. And I kind of grabbed onto that as a, a hard problem, something that I would be interested in for a very long time and that, um, you know, I could study from multiple perspectives. And so kind of the rest is history. Well, and we are very thankful that um, that you took that path because <laughs> your your work is certainly very important um, to substantiate what we try to do as far as bringing awareness to this population and how we can get more um, identification, better identification, yes. and more help for them. So as as we sort of get into this, um, as I mentioned, we often talk about the importance of understanding who they are, and. Mm -hmm. um, that would be gifted Asperger's ADHD. If you will, for our listeners, briefly describe and just help us as we remind them of their strengths, visual, spatial abilities, divergent thinking. Talk a little bit about that. Right. So some of the qualities that people observe and tell stories about are, are these mental capacities that seem to be very focused and very high level. Um, you know, And so in some with, someone with Asperger's, they are excellent um, calculators and have excellent mathematical ability and the ability to uh, see patterns in, in things that other people don't. Um, they have incredible memory capacity. Um, in someone with attention deficit, these are people who are very good divergent thinkers. Um, when I was a middle school teacher, I had a, a very seasoned teacher you know, tell me that she had a little boy in her class who had attention deficit disorder and she couldn't get him to finish the diorama of King Tut's tomb, but he elevated the level of classroom discussion beyond anything that she'd ever witnessed in 30 years of teaching. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and so that's like, that's a, a kind of a textbook description that there are on a basic level these processes where they can't make products in the way mm -hmm. that, that teachers want them to, but verbally and cognitively they see things at such a high level that it, it gives them entree into higher-level problems. And in school, sometimes that's a problem because a teacher may say, if they can't do the simple things, how can I elevate them into the, into the harder things? Um, but the other interesting thing about some of these, what seem to be natural abilities, is that these are some of the skills that are, you know, are featured in our current discussion about STEM fields and, and mm -hmm. the arts you know, the ability to be visual and spatial, to see information simultaneously. Um, and so we're kind of up against this paradox in our system that we have these kids who are essentially part of our brain trust, and yet the skills they have are, are somewhat invisible, 
um, to the way we're educating students in the mainstream. And we recognize recognize this in STEM ed, but twice-exceptional kids are a special class of those people who could be actually producing and doing things at very high level. Well, and as a teacher, I know that the visual-spatial abilities are not appreciated nearly as much as the literacy and the mathematical abilities. And so that those um, kids who, who may not be the strongest readers and may not be the most excellent at math are also quite capable of extreme imaginative um, input into conversations, metaphoric thinking, things that are just so different and and so enriching, like you said. It just it does elevate the classroom discussion. And, and when I have a child like that, I, I immediately latch on and know that there's something more that we can do with this student. There's something more that can be done for them. But I do often run up against um, working with um, my, my special ed teams sometimes, mm-hmm. Lane, because they don't always understand, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I just I kind of second what you're saying that that we have we have this this population that has so much to contribute, and yet um, it's almost like they're tethered by the education system in so many ways. Exactly, and I I think there's there's a there's a context problem too because we we look at behavior that's perseverative. And mm-hmm. if that kind of perseveration results in something creative or or a product that's valued by society, then we say, oh, that person, you know, was, was had flow, like they were in a moment of flow and they were creating something wonderful. And in the case of a disability, perseveration is a, also a feature of autism. And, you know, hyper-focus is a feature of inattentive ADHD, and so in that situation, that kind of focus is not always productive. And yet in the twice exceptional person, that could go either way. And I think we have more influence than we think we do in terms of, of which way things tip. I agree because yeah. a lot of it is, as you said, it's contextual and it's also um, in terms of the perception of what's happening when the perseveration occurs, it can it can easily be seen as disability, depending right. upon what you're wanting the child. Do you want the child to initiate? Well, if they're perseverating at that point, you know they're in trouble. Um, in terms of you know there's something wrong. It looks like something's wrong. But then if we do give them the, the time to hatch what they're working on, to let it come to fruition in the way that it will, sometimes we can be very, very surprised and see strengths that we didn't realize were there. Exactly. There, There's a little boy that I've worked with in the past who uh, in school the, the, you know, the sensory noises of pencils on the desk would oh. be very difficult for him to handle, and yet when you pulled him out of that context, he could perform math at, at two or three grade levels above where he is, and it just all had to depend with what was happening around him and, and how safe he felt in being able to perform and to do what he could really do. Yes. And I noticed that you um, were talking about um, almost um, the ADHD children um, and diver- divergent thinking mm-hmm. and the children with autism and um, and 
their unique abilities and thinking. Um, are those tied to executive function? And um, do, do this is that tied to how the executive function might manifest itself in the different populations? That's an open question, and that it's a question that my research has been focused on. Um, you know, because we have intelligence measures, but we all know that when you have a number, uh, you know, for your intelligence, that it doesn't have a whole bunch of usefulness beyond understanding that you're functioning at a particular level. Um, and so in the, in the folks in the autism research community that have studied people who are low-functioning, um, they looked at the relationship of verbal and performance IQ and the distance between those. And they, it gave them some insight about social and communication deficits in people who are low-functioning. And, you know, based on that precedent in my lab, you know, we thought, well, if, if that's a useful model that has shown us something about the low-functioning population, what might it show us in the high-functioning population? And so we compared... Um, the distance between verbal and performance IQ in some kids with autism, Asperger's high-functioning autism, against a sample of, of you know, typically matched controls for age and intelligence. And we correlated that with executive functions. And, you know, we have kind of some emerging data coming out to show that there are certain aspects of executive function that may be supported or protected by verbal intelligence. And in Asperger's, in our study, it was showing that, that your, their ability to plan and organize information and to monitor information in the environment was tied to this really high verbal IQ being, you know, somewhat 15 points greater, farther apart from their performance ability. And that's paradoxical because when you think of autism function and the talents they have, you think about the nonverbal domain. You think about math. Okay. You think about music. Um, and so it's very interesting to, to begin to think that there are that there's some verbal capacity supporting the nonverbal function, and that really where the where the story is is not just the IQ number itself, but this relationship of certain kinds of intelligence to certain skills of executive function. And you know, I would hypothesize that that if we you know look at kids with ADHD, that that's going to look slightly different. Um, you know, the skills that, that kind of map onto those correlations, we're going to see some different things. But, um, you know, we're, we're trying to define useful models that capture the variability because a lot of the, the big obstacle in researching these populations is how variable they are, especially when, when they're high on the, the bell curve. You know, add high IQ and disabilities together and you, you get kind of a double whammy. And so this is a model where we've been able to, to prove that there's some traction at, at looking at a ratio of relationships uh, as a potential way to understand what's driving their talent and, you know, as well as defining the weaknesses that they have. And that sounds somewhat dimensional, even as we're working, and I know I'm kind of jumping around, but as you were talking about um, the studies and, and as you, the hot, the high IQ, I couldn't help but think that we could be looking at dimensions of of, um, of a larger, I don't know if you will, population that this mm -hmm. isn't necessarily just autism or ADHD, but perhaps we're going to see that, that dimensions of, of different 
abilities and functions and disabilities exist within this this high range population. Right. I know. Um, I just uh, I have trouble sometimes understanding how um, ADHD can can be a symptom of autism, and mm-hmm. in DSM it's certainly you know right there um, right now in DSM four TR it does say that a lot of kids are mis- first with Asperger's are first diagnosed with ADHD because they're associated features. And so at what point can we really draw a line between these two and say one or the other rather than um, almost uh, perhaps different expressions of of a broader spectrum? Yeah, it's a conundrum that, that we share as researchers, clinicians, and practitioners. And, you know, the point that I try to make is that if ADHD is is a disorder, um, it's a category disorder. You're in the inattentive type category or the hyperactive category or combined type category, and yet autism is a spectrum disorder. And so, you know, we've given we've given shape to these definitions that that are not similar necessarily. So, right. you know, the variability it, it, we know it's there. We know it's there just on a human individual level. But in the case of disabilities, we also know that that it's there, and um, you know it's just a matter of kind of opening up the lens to say, you know, we know we know more about some aspects of disorders, and and less about others. And in you know in gifted education, certainly we're really kind of on the advent still of understanding empirically what a twice exceptional person is made of and what constitutes twice exceptionality in a way that we can study it empirically and define it so that we can study it empirically instead of just rely on on description. Well, you know, if I can go ahead, Diane. If I can jump in there real quick, I was just going to mention cuz I I was talking about this brief uh, briefly today um there's an article I ran across, and it's from June of this year, and it was published in the American Society for um, Experimental Neurotherapeutics. Um, and the title of the article is called Treatment for Co-Occurring ADHD um, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder and Autism Spectrum Disorder. And basically, um, they talk about how this has become a growing interest. These two issues that you know we're discussing now, being so, uh, if you will, which is the word we <laughs> shy away from, overlapping, but yet how the research has had a really hard time. The more intense it has become, mm-hmm. really sorting out where to draw those boundaries and you know what how to say this is an executive function uh, autism problem. This is an executive function ADHD problem. And as as Lane points out um, in her slide so well um, of her talk on executive function, there's so many different varying opinions of, you know, what they mean and definitions, I guess, is a better way to say that. Yeah. But um, this article is wonderful because it really, it gives rise, you know, to a whole other topic, and that is on the whole DSM issue of, you know, if we're going to look at it dimensionally, if we're going to say it's okay to have both of these things at the same time, then you're not exclusive. You've just discredited the point of a of a differentiation, <laughs> a system that differentiates. Right. Yeah, it's, well, it's it's important for people to keep in mind that that you know, as I said before, that practitioners, clinicians, and 
researchers all share, we all share the variability problem. We also all share the definition problem, um, you know, because executive function alone, there are 30-some definitions in the literature. Um, and in our paper, we I think we define 20 of them and say, you know, giftedness, there isn't a unified definition. There aren't unified definitions for um, disorders beyond, you know, what the DSM criteria give you. And then when you try to study the cognitive processes of the human brain just in general and then how those processes are influenced under conditions of certain disabilities, that's where it could, it, 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 it's what I call a wicked problem, um, you know, because you, you're picking a definition and you're saying, you know, I think this one has traction and, you know, most definitions of executive function agree that, that they are the suite of skills related to planning and monitoring yourself. Um, you know, I always break it down for teachers and, and, say, and parents and say, uh, you know, th- essentially it's two different kinds of skills. It's how you manage information in your environment and it's how you manage yourself in the environment. Right. And, then, and then in each of those okay. categories there are these different skills. And, you know, I think what clinicians have tried to do is to understand which of those suites of skills are more influenced by certain kinds of disability, um, but then, again, appreciating, you know, the variance and the fact that a person can be both, can have both diagnoses. They can be gifted and have both diagnoses. Um, and so that's where it gets really hard to include and exclude, if you will, yeah. you know, in, in research, because in education you don't get to include and exclude. You have to differentiate. Right. Well, in and speaking of that, something I thought was really fascinating when I first heard you speak at a meeting at NAGC was talking about, and everyone in Gifted understands this, there has been very limited data, just actually one study that's mostly um, you know, talked about as far as the total population of 2E. Mm-hmm. And tell us, because um, that's exciting to, to think of, you know, what a new study or some new data on the actual statistics than the count in this population is, it could change everything for research. Talk a little exactly. bit about that. Um, that's that's a very hard problem, and it's, you know, I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and that's a question that always gets asked very early in the conversation, how many people are we talking about? And, you know, the folks at the University of Iowa have done a recent calculation estimating 300 to 360,000 kids. And I've had policymakers say to me, but that's not a lot of kids in in the scheme of Mm -hmm. things. Um, But then I have an N of one physicist sitting next to me who says, but I'm one of those kids and I'm an award-winning physicist now. And so you kind of volley back and forth between the story and the number. And um, I think a recent chapter that I wrote I basically took the reader through, kind of just through the sake of the argument, and said, you know, if you mine the CDC data reporting the incidence of autism and you look at the policy sites that that trying to keep track of these counts for dyslexia, for ADHD, and you stack them all together and then you draw the bell curve and the number of people that are, you know, gifted and, you know, up in the, the upper above average and superior levels of intelligence you can kind of do some raw numbers, but but it begs a question that no one has really uh, valued this as a as a population based question. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, because now be, with the rising uh, interest in STEM and and STEAM too, because mm-hmm. I'm I'm an artist and a scientist, and I would argue that that they are very close in ways that people might not think um, in the skills that you use to define problems and and you know create strategies. So. Um, you know, with STEM and STEAM kind of coming to the front, as I said before, you know, these people represent somewhat of a brain trust and are, are going to kind of hopefully, you know, this is going to continue to raise an awareness and, and be prioritized at more of a, a population level so we can start to make some headway in the research domain. Right, and you're exactly right. And I know Becky and I have really tried to illustrate this and really um, highlight this in our book that, you know, we're talking about um, within this population some very important, you know, possibly our next group of inventors or, you know, our um, in technology or our artists you know, our our leaders and our visionaries, and that makes this crucial. Um, Although, you know, if we don't have the measures of the population itself, you're right, that's a two-sided coin. That is also saying that this population actually can affect our entire population. Right. Which kind of gives it a different angle and and certainly a level of importance from from a public standpoint. It does. And, and, and from a lab, from a laboratory standpoint, if I can just interject this point, sure. one of the things that we're learning again, you know, we think that that biological results are going to simplify our knowledge, and I think it's actually going to go in the opposite direction. But we measured a group of children again, control kids against kids with high functioning autism and Aspergers, um, in a collaboration I was in with Georgetown and Children's National Medical Center. And we were just looking at their attentional flexibility. And um, on a behavioral level, they they looked just like neurotypical kids. They they were mm-hmm. as fast and accurate as normal kids are. But the parts of the brain that were supporting that ability were very different from typically developing kids. Um, you know, in, in most kids, their frontal lobes are what facilitate attention from, you know, ages 6 to 12. They get a really nice growth spurt from the left to the right hemisphere and, and you get this bilateral advantage in your prefrontal cortex that helps you pay attention and gives you executive function skills. And in kids with autism, that's sitting more back in the sensory motor parts of the brain. It, you know, It's almost like a brain that wants to hang on to all of the developing capacities in 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 these sensory areas, it almost says, you know, no, we can do, we can take care of that function. It doesn't need to differentiate and go to the frontal lobes. We can take care of it. And so you begin to understand in a new way why sensory issues are important in kids on the spectrum. How they how it is that they overload very quickly because their sensory capacities are actually doing other jobs besides the ones that they were really set to do. So, you know, immediately there's an empathy um, piece to to this understanding where anyone that works with these kids or, or has these relationships in their life can look at that person differently and say, oh, of course, now I get it. This is why, you know, you look like you're paying attention and, and you are, but 
but actually you're you're taking absorbing information. Your brain is absorbing it differently in a way that you know tops you out early, and that's that's game changing, and that's something that you can work with specifically in an educational setting and in a, a quality of life perspective. Right. It's it's in a very practical um, and very practical ways of yes. of connecting the dots here to really get some movement on helping these kids. And speaking of helping these kids, or um, should I say the the controversy that seems to be brewing right now, both publicly and privately, is uh, we've had a, a lot of discussions about this on the show, and there's been just so much talk in the public media about the new changes for DSM-5, the Diagnostic mm-hmm. Manual, and um, there's professional concerns, and on the public side, certainly there's been a lot of um, outcry over the changes to autism, not not necessarily making it one big spectrum. I think everybody is in agreement that's a great idea. Um, but I think what the concern is are the changes for Asperger's in our higher functioning kids, which would right. definitely include our twice exceptional kids. So yes. if you could give us your thoughts on that and kind of weigh in on that discussion. Right. Well I I mean I already think in the in the clinical world that we're we undervalue twice the twice exceptional diagnosis. Um, you know, people are not necessarily educated to to what that's about. Um, you know, a clinician can say this person has IAQ, but they also have ADHD. Um, you know, Susan Asseline at the University of Iowa has done some work to show that even when kids have a you know autism spectrum disorder and high IQ they're compromised in working memory and in processing speed, which is those are essentially the pipelines of how you show what you know. And so if the pipeline's broken, then, then again, it's this performance, it's this demonstration, kind of proof of concept that's being compromised in these kids. And in my research with executive function, same thing, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're not showing where the pipeline is broken. We're actually identifying what's getting picked up and what's getting protected and potentially supported. And those are really important points of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but we've been also looking at, you know, how these kids reason in the lab. And we're we're looking at some kids who have high function and Asperger's and some of their reasoning Skills there when you look at their functional MRIs, you know we invent these reasoning games, they play them in an MRI scanner, and that shows us their functional brains solving the problems we've given them and in some of these kids the gray the gray matter changes that are associated with the definition of asperger's or with the definition of high functioning autism actually correlate with their functional systems when they're solving problems. And so, again, this is hinting that that these changes that we see may not be disease-based. These changes might be showing us where the brain has compensated and protected itself. Um, and, you know, this is this is very early, early preliminary result, but we're excited about it because it would give some empirical evidence to say, you know, we distinguished these differences um, because we thought they were important, and on a behavioral level, we see that that an Asperger's person behaves 
acts and has very different strengths and weaknesses than even a child who has high-functioning autism. And, you know, language is usually the defining feature that distinguishes them. An Asperger's child may have a really high verbal IQ and be more social and sophisticated in that way, um, but still be on the spectrum. And so, you know, if the behavioral changes that we all say we see are really holding up in our biology, then it, it says, you know, we've acknowledged that there's variability here and we ought to we ought to continue to acknowledge it so that we can work with it prospectively and, and get it right. You know, everybody's working for the same goal. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, may I ask you a question, Lane, about um, gender and your mm-hmm. studies? Have you noticed any differences or have you looked for gender differences at all or have you uncovered any or... Um, because that's something girls have received um, so little attention comparatively to boys in autism research. And so um, Um, given what you're studying, it's just fascinating. I just didn't know because this has the potential to impact how we look at girls in the classroom just incredibly. Yeah, um, Yeah, our our studies in the laboratory, we haven't been able – to study, um, you know, boys and boys versus girls. Um, you know, in autism, we know that boys outnumber girls four to one, and so mm-hmm. it's very it's very hard to to find uh, girls to study that you know you, where you can really stack up a group of people. Um, you know, I should also qualify that my laboratory we're in a research institute on a community college or on a campus, you know, that sits in a in a community of Northern Virginia. Um, we're not in a hospital, so we're not, you know, we're, we're not seeing patients. We're seeing volunteers who are willing to come in and participate with us, and we rely on our good partners. Um, so some of our public recruiting networks are the um, Parents of Autistic Children in Northern Virginia and the Interactive Autism Network at Kennedy Krieger Institute of Johns Hopkins, um, and then Children's National Medical Center has a, a prevalent autism footprint in the Northern Virginia community. And so a lot of the people that we see come in with diagnoses from these places, but we are really um, dependent on, on the people willing to come in and volunteer their time for a couple of weekends. So, you know, our doors are open and, and we're always collecting data, but the gender the gender issue is important, but it's not something that we've been able to really address at the outset where we've really been in the phase of collecting pilot data and, you know, being very careful about our inclusion and our exclusion criteria so that we're, we get a, a fairly clean look at autism spectrum disorder. Well, that will be um, exciting to see at, you know, at some point as, Stay tuned. Um, <laughs> as we can look at it from a gender difference. I know in, when we had um, Dr. Gould, Judith Gould and Lorna Wing on this summer, they talked about from their uh, center there's some research being done looking specifically at girls because mm-hmm. they too feel that it's an underserved population that may um, give us some enlightenment. Definitely. Well, we um, as we talk about DSM, and I know you and I discussed this, and um, it was talked about when we gave a presentation this week with Temple, um, this new category, it, it just deserves mentioning, and I'm not going to put you on the spot to give us your opinion about it, 
I, what I want to know is this. Um, it's the the new category that was considered to be originally as a spinoff of oppositional defiant disorder, which has been somewhat um, a difficult disorder to, to nail down and certainly one that um, hasn't been real supported. But um, we're talking about DMDD, if anyone has heard that. I think they originally mentioned it as temper dysregulation. Now it's being described as disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. Um, and it is possibly the literature has stated that this could be a place to um, to capture any pediatric bipolar or oppositional defiant yeah. disorder. And I think the question is, and, and maybe this goes way back up to the executive function um, topic that we had, when we're looking at um, uh, maybe a, a perseverative behavior that turns into resistance to change, which looks yeah. oppositional mm-hmm. in our twice exceptional kids. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're concerned this might be an area that um, we really need to think long and hard about before we find another place to put kids because of their behavior, I guess mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. Right. And a, a good clinician is going to take a look at, at multiple pieces of the puzzle. You know, I think that's that's where that comes down, that it, a good clinician in a case like that, especially if there were a specific decision point at stake for a particular student, you know, do they get pulled out of school? Are they being censored in some way for behavior? Um, you know, a good clinician is going to say, okay, that's that's one piece, but what does this person look like cognitively in other ways? You know, what's their level of intelligence? What are their skills? What are their weaknesses? Um, you know, because the thing that everybody's driving for, everyone would like to have more certainty, especially when it comes to, you know, the, the disorders that get categorized in the DSM. Everybody, we just want to get it right, and right. we want shorter paths to diagnosis, treatment, and, and success. You know, the the overriding question mark in, in brain science certainly and, and in a lot of these clinical areas is, um, you know, we're treating and we're remediating and we're assisting, but what's the longitudinal data on medicine, on interventions? Um, did we change the brain permanently? Did it result in better academic achievement? Did it change that person's quality of life? And and those metrics, we don't really have those metrics in a lot of the areas of science that we're looking to to provide some of the certainty. So especially in the case of twice exceptional kids, um, you know, you you hope, and this is where public awareness and educating clinicians about the nature of gifted kids and who they are as a population, because that's kind of the, the, you know, a a sidebar discussion to 2E is who is it, what is a gifted child uh, in particular in their overexcitabilities and their own sensitivities, And, and that's an awareness issue of making sure that clinicians and people seeing these kids and making decisions are looking at both sides of the coin to say, is it this or is it that? And, you know, that's been somewhat nicely framed in in gifted education. There are some people that think that gifted is mistaken for ADHD. Um, There are others of us that think you can be both gifted and ADHD, but, again, a good clinician is going to see the difference between a hyperactive child and a bored one. Um, and that it, it goes back to that context. So, you know, these changes that are coming, p- 
people are really wanting more certainty and more specificity in the diagnosis and treatment. Um, but on the other side of that, really, you know, it, there is this burden of literacy and education for teachers and clinicians understanding more about what each other's worlds involve and that, that behavioral observations are calibrated uh, properly, especially in 2E. Right, and it and it just emphasizes the importance of the work that your lab is doing and that you're doing, and that is, you know, as Temple um, Grandin has said, and she uh, repeats this, this was one of her big reasons for getting involved with Bright Not Broken, and that was we've got to share this information amongst disciplines and communities. Mm-hmm. That um, and and I I hear that as I see the concern for um, a disruptive mood disorder or an exclusive autism disorder that um, is going to exclude maybe our high functioning by us giving more data and more information mm-hmm. on the twice exceptional child then that in a way is a is a better way to combat it than just simply trying to um, stamp out, if you will, the non-helpful diagnosis by education. The the point has been made that that disabilities can mask giftedness in students, and it it certainly can, but but giftedness can also mask disability. Um, I think that's a coin that flips both directions, and the outcome is the same, you know, that there's a child who's being misunderstood or underestimated in a in a very um, important way, but but one can mask the other, and that there are consequences that go in both directions. And the giftedness may help compensate for the disability, but the disability is kind of hijacking those intellectual resources. And so it's it, it's a hard picture for those of us who think we know what twice exceptionality is. It's a hard thing. It is a case by case basis kind of a problem. Um, In the autism world, they say if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And and that's where that, you know, variability is the wicked problem. Um, But it isn't insurmountable. And I think that that's the important thing to keep in mind is that that we're in an age where we have the capacity to study ourselves in ways we've never done before. And now especially to study twice exceptionality in a way that we never have before. And um, you know, and so it's this communication effort is extremely important because it it's how we're going to get traction on defining these problems in useful ways mm-hmm. that that can push things forward. And we can always, you know, we can always talk about the the semantics of how we're defining certain things, but just keeping in the back of our minds that people are are just trying to get it right and. Um, you know, certainly wiping away some of the differentiation that we've already acknowledged is there is probably not a good idea. Um, but I, I think data is going to help um, right. provide some clarity in, in these discussions. There, there's certainly always a work in progress. Absolutely. And, you know, although um, we we are parents we also have always since our first book felt so important about presenting things from a scientific standpoint because that really is the one place that we can all come to an agreement and and we we feel the importance 
of um, of that. That's why what you do is so important, and we are just we so, are thankful so thankful that you decided to join us. And <laughs> Thank we, you for uh, having me. <laughs> well, we're just thrilled to have you, and we look forward to following your work. And um, we know that you've helped us to um, to help create even more awareness for who these kids are and why it's so important, as we mentioned earlier, to all of society that we help them get better identified and served. So if you will, in closing, can you tell us uh, where our listeners can learn more about KidLab, um, your work, where you are on Twitter, Facebook, your website? Absolutely, absolutely. If they Google KidLab, K-I-D-L-A-B-G-M-U, that should bring up the lab website. On Twitter, we are at KidLab, K-I-D-L-A-B, um, and I can be reached at 2eConsults at gmail.com. That's a good public email address for contact. And um, from there, you'll you'll find more than you want to know, articles, book chapters, <laughs> talks, <laughs> um, on all kinds of things, the neuroplasticity of giftedness and twice exceptionality and different imaging studies that we're doing to isolate how the environment is impacting learning. So we're very busy and we're, I, you know, we're excited and I really appreciate the opportunity to tell our story tonight. Thank you very much. Well, we well, are very you, glad uh, to have you. Yeah, it's exciting to think of uh, just how directed your studies are and the impact that this will have in terms of education and interventions, and what we can do to permanently change lives. It's very exciting. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. It is. Thank you um, again, and we will look forward to having you back to hear more as we follow your research. And we certainly have a lot of very educated um, parents and professionals out there who I think will enjoy reading uh, just as much as, as you offer on your outlet. So um, thank you again for being on the Bright Not Broken show on the Coffee Clatch. Of course, Marianne Russo, we are so grateful we've got this opportunity to um, to offer this. So um, you have a wonderful evening, and please come back and visit us again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Good night. Good night. Good night.